And now for another amazing episode of the Pop Zara podcast. History forgets, but gamers like Pepperidge Farm remembers. Our guest today is a games industry veteran who knows something about remembering classic games with a unique career as a journalist, historian, presenter, and of course, an actual games player, which has made him uniquely qualified to head digital eclipses as editorial director, Mr. Chris Kohler. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you for that introduction. It's very nice. Oh, I, I could have gone a lot longer because you have one of those careers that's pretty much almost longer than some of the games that Digital Eclipse remasters. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. <laughs> so, uh, I'm old is what you're saying. I get it. I get it. But Okay, but when we say old, we have to say like gaming old because it's very different for people who play games that are old versus like people who are actual historians because it's very different. You're not quite retirement age, but we'll we'll get there. Right. But, but but anyway, uh, Chris, uh, thank you for joining us today because I got to tell you, I wanted to talk with you last year. We just never got around it because of scheduling. I did mention you are the editorial director over at Digital Eclipse. For people who do not know, Digital Eclipse has been around quite a while, actually, uh, longer than us. Uh, they're known for remastering making, but recently things have changed a little bit for the positive in which we can get into. The game that we're here to talk about today is something that I, that I really want to talk about. It's the making of Karataka. And before we get into it, let's just get the elephant out of the room, the tomato tomato. Karatika or Karataka? Uh, well, I say Karataka. I always grew up saying Karataka. In Japanese, it'd be like Karateka. It, it's very similar. Um, but like, you know, Jordan and the people at Broderbund always said Karateka. And so uh, there's we basically sort of lean into it in the product that yes. uh, you can kind of pronounce it however you want. Like, it's, it's not worth it to try to obsess over uh, the correct pronunciation. Just say whatever makes sense to you. I, I was trying to find a really good way to sort of insert that joke because, like you said, there is a feature in the game where it talks about this, but this is video games we're talking about. I mean, uh, we talk about people, even though he says it in every single game, we st people still say Mario whenever when the character himself says Mario. So right, right, yeah, <laughs> I know. I really enjoyed in the um, in the in the the beginning of the movie, uh, the, the Mario movie, which had to have been a deliberately placed in joke when they, you know, the actress in the commercial is like, "Thank you, Super Mario Bros." <laughs> um, which you know, repeating essentially two uh, incorrect uh, readings of it at, at the same time. That's impressive. You can get that. Yeah. You can you can get that much bad nostalgia in one product. But um, <laughs> I do want to uh, talk about Nintendo with you a little later on because uh, for those who don't know, you've written extensively. You've been interviewed. You actually are considered something of a Nintendo historian. And this being twenty twenty, excuse me, the year twenty twenty three, there's a lot to talk about. But yeah, it's I, true. Uh, well, quite a bit actually. We could uh, we could almost make this the Nintendo podcast, but we won't because you can get that anywhere else. Now, for future reference, I'm just going to say it like I know it. I'm going to say uh, Karataka because that's what I grew up saying. I'm stubborn, mm -hmm. and that's what it's going to be. It's I'm a I'm a Ryu man, not a Ryu man. So I have to I have to stick with what I know. But going back to this, so Chris, uh, so let's go back to the company you worked for, Digital Eclipse. Mm -hmm. uh, you've been with the company since 2020, is that correct? That is correct. Yep. Okay. Now, for those who don't know, if you could tell a little bit about your tenure there, because I do want to go into how things have changed specifically in the last two years. And I think I think they'll find that interesting. Oh, okay. So the Digital Eclipse, well, Digital Eclipse originally, um, and maybe you want to get to this later, but Digital Eclipse was originally founded as a company uh, in the early 90s and released its first, um, Digital Eclipse was the first, uh, you know, company to actually use emulation uh, to bring back older games on modern hardware. And in this case, it was um, using arcade emulation to emulate Williams arcade games, Defender and Robotron and Joust uh, for the Mac. 
um, and this was uh, the you know Digital Eclipse um, uh, branded uh, Williams Digital Arcade uh, releases. And um, this was a you know it's a big it was a big deal when that happened because you know prior to that, if you compare those products to what else was on the shelves, um, it was like you know Microsoft Arcade and stuff like that. And essentially, what that was was game developers um, not having any access to the source code or any behind the scenes materials or whatever to these games and essentially just like looking at the arcade game and then trying to recreate from scratch something that played like that game and that was essentially what you got with console ports computer versions and things like that at that time but digital eclipse you know pioneered the idea of just using uh, emulation to take the exact arcade game not a recreation but the exact thing and get that running onto a new machine. Um, and so Digital Eclipse then kind of makes a name for itself for a few years and sort of bringing back, um, you know, classic uh, arcade and console properties, things like that. Um, and then uh, there was a you know, bunch of studio mergers and things like that. They, they form Backbone by merging with a different company and then it forms Foundation 9 through various mergers. Um, and then the, the, some of the original people behind Digital Eclipse spun out of Foundation 9, bought the brand back, um, started a company called Other Ocean, and then revived the Digital Eclipse brand in 2015. Um, and Digital Eclipse now uh, has been going since 2015, but um, as of the beginning of 2023, has actually been spun out now into its own uh, independent company. So Digital Eclipse is no longer a brand of Other Ocean, it's its own company. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, in 2020, I joined as editorial director. So when Digital Eclipse was brought back in 2015, um, you know, Frank Zafaldi, who is now the head of the Video Game History Foundation, um, was its head of restoration. And so he was basically kind of in charge of all of the, you know, the historical research and the writing and all of the historical elements of the, the collections that Digital Eclipse was doing. Um, he had since left. Uh, there was a need for somebody to come in and, you know, pick up. You know, it's impossible to pick up everything that Frank did because he's, you know, kind of technical as well. Um, but from the editorial and writing and research side of things, uh, they needed somebody. So um, it was a great opportunity for me because uh, I had spent about 25-ish years in the gaming media and had been, you know, pondering, you know, if I were to make that leap into the game development side or the publishing side or whatever, you know, it's like, well, what would that what would that be? What would that look like? And so this opportunity coming along with Digital Eclipse was like, well, I've, I've, I've got to, you know, I've known these guys for a really long time. I really respect what they've done. And so to get in and, you know, essentially come in and really assess what was going on editorially within these games and, you know, see what we could do to even to, to level that up. And so I started with um, Blizzard Arcade Collection and Ninja Turtles, the Cowabunga Collection, Disney Classic Games Collection, um, then Atari 50, the anniversary celebration. But the, really the first game that I started working on was the making of Karataka. Um, and that just sort of, that had to keep getting shelved as these big, big projects came in that kind of required all hands on deck. But it was, it actually all kind of worked out because I got you know, so much more experience under my belt with other projects that when it really came time to circle back around to Karataka, you know, we had, um, uh, there was, there, there, there had been a lot more thinking done about um, how to approach this. And making a Karataka is, um, you know, truly like an interactive documentary. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's not a retro collection at all. Um, very much like Atari 50, um, the, 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 the difference is the core user experience is not, here's a list of video games uh, that are old, go pick one and start playing it. It's, we're gonna tell you a story. 
We're going to tell you a story about something that happened long ago in the world of video games. And we're going to tell that story through video, audio, you know, artifacts, design documents, scans, you know, whatever we, you know, uh, deeply researched kind of historical trivia. Um, and then also playable games. And the games become part of that historical journey that you're taking. And this is kind of, this was, the, this, this was the big move in the sense that like, this was the, um, the, the, the big kind of leap of faith that, um, we could, uh, center that, you know, what, what used to be known as the museum, you know what I mean? That we could mm-hmm. take the, what used to be sort of relegated to the bonus content and we could put that up front and center. We could make that the user experience that the games themselves rather than being necessarily the the big star of the show, you know, can be seen as supporting material for this documentary style story that we want to tell. Um, And so that is the new thing essentially that we're doing. And it's really grounded in the work that we've done um, on, you know, you know, because we, we, we do the Ninja Turtles collection for, you know, Konami or, um, you know, Blizzard Arcade collection and, you know, fundamentally, publishers are looking for uh, a, a, a more straightforward product. And it comes down to us now as an independent company to be putting out stuff like the making of Parodica, where we say, you know, we're doing this internally the way we want to do it. We're going to take risks. We're going to do something that's a little bit offbeat because we think that once if we can get that proof of concept out there, people see, you know, how it works, um, then maybe they'll want that, you know, too. Once it's once it's a little bit less of a pie in the sky, we have a dream and more of a no, we actually put this out and players really react to it and we're showing you can do it. Um, you know, we're hopeful that not even just in the projects that we work on, but that everybody that's involved with, um, you know, keeping these legacy games, keeping classic games in print will look at this as a model going forward for how to do it with more respect, how to properly contextualize those games um, for the for the, the, the player of the documentary. Um, and to realize that it's going to it, it ultimately the, the best thing we can do is we can we can tell great stories, we can create more fans of these games, you know, rather than simply get a game running again on a modern platform and selling it to somebody who remembers the old game, we can literally create um, new fans because when you understand when you, when you have not just the what is this game but the who made this and how did they make it and why did they make it why is it important you know why does it have the legacy that it has when people understand all of that I think they have more of an emotional connection to that game and it it, it, it creates new fans I mean that's the hope well, uh, I will say this, going back to what you talked about with your history, um, the history of Digital Eclipse, I do think it's important for, for listeners to understand that it's very, it's critical that there are people in play that understand the historical significance of the products you guys are releasing, uh, because you, you mentioned a few other games that were more recent, specifically, um, you know, the, most recently the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the Cowabunga Collection. By the way, great timing on that. Uh, this is a good year for turtles fans, by the way. Just want just want to say, but uh, I do want to I want to go back uh, really quick because when you when you think when you speak about games journalism, mm-hmm. I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong on this, but you said you did mention that you worked on the Atari 50, the anniversary collection, where I think yes. a lot yes. of the excitement I think for Karataka is coming from as well. Twenty Gamers released last year, 2022. 
And I'm going to say something that's going to sound a little disparaging towards the industry as a whole, but it's not meant to be. But we've become accustomed to these to game collections of classic games in lieu of blockbuster games. We see a new release almost every day from some company or other, some better than others. Uh, Digital Eclipse tends to do very well. Uh, M2 tends to do very well. Night Dive Studios has been doing very well with their recent collections. And we're starting to see sort of a refinement where the packages become, here's a list of titles. And you know, you know where I'm going with this. Here's a bunch of features. Here's some CRT filters, you know, to, to make the screen look old. Here's some here's some base trivia. And we've gotten accustomed to them and they've been they've been getting better. But I think with the Atari 50 anniversary collection, I think we've noticed a sea change. I think something was different. And I think the industry responded to that. I don't I don't know if you felt it too, but the interest in the Atari 50 collection, let's let me be generous here. Atari as a company is not Atari in 2022 is not the same Atari that was in 1981. It's pretty much Atari in name only. Um, you know, we've seen a thousand VHS systems. We've seen emulation machines. We've seen these games produced again and again. But there was something about the digital eclipse package that was different. And I think people responded. I know I responded to it quite a bit. It was actually one of our top releases for 2022. So congratulations. I know you were waiting to hear that. But what did you what did you think about the response for the Atari package? And specifically, like you like you mentioned a minute ago, uh, the interactive timeline, the, you know, the the I don't know the word I would use. I don't want to use the word template because I think we're going to get into that. But what did you what did you think the response to the interactivity versus the normal uh, remastering collection? Oh, I mean, we were blown away by the response and it was exactly what we needed to hear uh, to uh, galvanize our belief that we need to keep going in that direction. Um, Mm -hmm. So Atari 50, I mean, Atari 50 was... um, Okay, so as I said, like the first game that I started working on in 2020 was the making of Karatika, and we started, mm-hmm. you know, building it out into this this idea of, um, you know, let's tell this narrative story behind the game. Let's let's really, um, you know, at the, at the time, a lot of the early thinking was like, let's really let's make the museum much bigger. Let's make it more narrative and chronological. Um, and as we continued to sort of look at that, it's like that museum experience, you know, that interactive documentary concept kind of came, you know, became. Um, you know, bigger and bigger and bigger. And so when Atari had come to us and they wanted to do something for the 50th anniversary, um, they specifically needed something that was not a collection of games because they had already produced a collection of of games. Like you could already go buy Atari Flashback or Atari Vault. Quite a few, yeah, quite a few. and the, the other issue that we identified was, you know, there have been Atari collections literally going back to the Super Nintendo. You know what I mean? The Super NES mm-hmm. had, like, collections of Atari games, um, you know, on the PlayStation, things like that. But on the plate, you know, when it comes out for, like, the PlayStation, you had a lot of people who grew up with Atari who still owned a PlayStation because it was only 20 years later, you know? That's, like, the difference, you know, it's between, like, the Wii and the Switch. Like, it's not that much time. You know, so you had people who were just like, oh, cool, Atari games. They buy tons of it because they just want to play those Atari games again. But as the years go on, you know, you have fewer and fewer people who are like, oh, I need to get a collection of Atari games for my new console. So there has to be something new and exciting about it. Um, And really, we have to start with the premise that um, you don't necessarily... um, uh, like you're not here for the games, you know, like you don't, maybe sure. you don't even know what these games are. 
And so the idea behind, um, you know, so Atari 50 was our first entry in the, you know, interactive documentary style space where when you press start on the title screen, you don't go to a menu that says games, you know, museum, options, credits, whatever. Like you press start and you're just thrown into a series of timelines. Like you're put into that museum experience by default. And the idea is we have to communicate to the player that like, no, 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 this is not the bonus. This is the the main experience. And so when you start going through the timelines, we don't just like give you a bunch of games. We don't even just give you Pong. You start with photographs, you know, from the, mm -hmm. the founding of Atari and you learn about why Pong exists. And then we take Pong and we, and we let you play a little bit of it, you know, or as much as you want, but you don't really, you don't have to play that much to sort of get the experience because ultimately it's like, most, I think people, when they get a collection of like classic games, especially when you have a collection of like a hundred different Atari games, they sort of dip in and out and I'm going to play this a little bit. I'll play that one a little bit. I'll play this one a little bit. And it's not as if they're, they're going in and they're spending five hours on every single game. It's more of like, you know, sampling. Um, and so by having that, that game sampling, by, by putting those games in an order, in which we use them to tell a story. If you're just sort of dipping in little bits here and there and sampling each game, then when that all, at, if, if that's all in a chronological narrative way, as if you're walking through a museum exhibit, interacting with stuff, it's all gonna add up to something. You're gonna feel like by playing these little bits of these games, you've you've actually sort of gone on a, a, a journey um, and that you're gonna feel the connection between Pong at this end and like Tempest 2000 all the way on the other end and you're going to have felt the evolution and it's all going to add up to like one video game that was a non-fiction documentary video game in which you learned about a certain you went on a certain journey and so with the making of Karataka um, you know once we had kind of done we were, we were done with Atari 50 we had to you know totally totally finish it and ship it so many of those learnings were able to be visited back onto the making of Karataka. And then it's even, it, then it's an even tougher sort of journey because it's, um, you don't even play Karataka until the end of the third of five timelines. And so well, what are you doing prior to that? You know, because we're going through the full making of before we get to the retail version of that game. And so it's, and it's just a story about one game. And it's like, well, can we keep the player's interest, you know, throughout that full story before you even get to the actual the, the finalized game itself then that's really kind of changing the 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 approach or changing the user experience and so but the fact that um the you know reviews that we got from atari 50 and the general player responses were that um you know because it could have gone the other way it could have been a lot of like well where, where are my video games i don't want to read you know and so the fact that it was really quite the opposite that people really you know picked up what we were what we were trying to, to get down with this um as far as uh you know um really changing the player's experience uh and creating that documentary um people uh it, it gave us the, the confidence to go ahead with you know the internal you know gold master series kind of plan of doing these sorts of interactive documentary style releases but doing it for um other games other creators other franchises and just it rather than um look at all the games that are out there and say okay well, which of these games are the most popular which of these games should we target to to bring back because they're popular they're bankable we can now look and say what are the interesting stories 
What are the interesting stories out there of game history and how could we tell those in an interactive way? So even if the games are bad, you know, <laughs> even if we, we could do a collection well, full of games that people wouldn't actually buy for themselves or even that are like notoriously bad, you know, as long as we're telling a good story, I think we can actually make it entertaining and something that somebody would come away from, you know, fulfilled. Well, I was going to say, I think that's what worked in your favor with the Atari 50 collection. Uh, with all due respect, as someone who grew up with Atari tapes, we didn't even call them cartridges, someone who spent more time than I can imagine playing Pitfall and, and Pong and everything. Um, and I say this with kindness, some things age better than others. Um, people still, yeah. and when you're looking at something like the Atari 50 anniversary collection, I think had you focused solely on the games themselves, I don't think we'd be talking right now. I don't think the game would have been a success. I don't think we, you know, there, there would be interest. I think the genius of what you guys did with that and with Karataka, and uh, I really want to get into this with you in a second, is that you were able to, like you said, define the human story. And I think even even more so though, you know, we, we did follow Nolan Bushnell, we followed the ins and outs of Atari, but I think with Karataka, we have a much more compelling story that is, and I say this with kindness, uh, if, if the game Karataka has aged to the point where it's more of an artifact of itself than an actual game that you sit down and enjoy, I think the story itself uh, supersedes that. I think it, it becomes the interest level, and I think you want to see more, and we can get into that in a second. But I do want to go back to, um, real quick, the, the what you call the interactive documentary, uh, because the first, the first thing that I thought about when you see this, for those who haven't played it, and by the way, if you haven't played Atari 50 or if you haven't played Karataka, go play them. Just stop, go play them, go buy them. But it's sort of, it's more than just a documentary, Chris. It's more, you've sort of gamified a game or gaming history. It's not, uh, again, you, you go back, you look at things, but you get points for seeing that. You know, yeah, there's completionist points and you get that little, you know, that little Pavlovian dopamine hit you know i mean it's not going to go on your you know your achievements or anything but you do you kind of like what did i miss what did i miss there's one percent i got to go back and find it so you got to look for it and with karataka i think you have an uh, evolved version of that which i, I do want to get into in a second but my question is i don't know if you've ever been to a museum like smithsonian museum or whatever you you get there you're you're very much passive no hands-on don't talk too loud don't crowd don't bump into things don't steal you know it's you know tyrants Right. I don't know, but you remember back in the 2000s, they they start implementing like Nintendo DSs where you could listen to exhibits. Yeah. Like you know, you, you feel like you you felt something was changing. Like as the iPhone became more popular, they you know it used to be transistor radios, then it was DSs, then iPhones. And with this, I and I think with Atari 50 anniversary and now Karataka, is that I think you've done something that I I think has been a long time coming. Is that you use the medium of video games to tell to allow video games to tell its own story. And, you know, we, people who read books, you're used to this. You, you see biographies on writers, movie documentaries, you see documentaries on filmmakers. But we've never really seen a video game document a video game before like this. And I'm, I'm, I'm really curious about what, what, how we went from, you know, like you said, an option on a collection to see galleries and pictures. Because you guys have, Digital Eclipse has been building to this for a very long time. We've seen elements of this in other games. You know, I, I, I don't know the one specifically. I have it written down. Give me one second here. I think it might have been the um, the SNK 40th anniversary collection where you start to see more, you know, background stuff. Mm -hmm. But what made the change to go from uh, reverential, you know, static collection to sort of full-blown interactive documentary? So, I mean, yeah. So basically, like, you know, 
Karatika, the Karatika project that we mm-hmm. were working on, um, was a big part of that because we knew uh, that it there was a really compelling story there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and as and again, as we're looking at, uh, I mean, you, you know, you mentioned like going to museums and using Nintendo DS. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, as I go to museums, I mean, that's that's kind of what we're looking at more than anything is like, well, what is the experience when you go to a museum? Because you know, there's a lot of things that are in you know retro collection type video games where it's labeled a museum, and uh, you go in and you know, and I you know I, I'm guilty of this too. You know, in previous uh, previous projects because. Um, you know, maybe it could have been a little bit more narrative uh, structured in some ways because it's like um, it's like going into if a museum says they're going to have an exhibit on dinosaurs and you walk into the museum and uh, it's all you see is just a big pile of dinosaur bones and a pile yeah. on the floor. You know what I mean? Like that's not that's not an exhibit. That's what not what you expect because you know a museum has a collection of all of this stuff. But first of all, they don't necessarily take everything that's in their collection and just put it all out on the floor. But it's carefully organized and it and it, and it tells you a story. But the reason that the I think the museum analogy is like the most um, apt, uh, you know, more so than a documentary film or documentary book, is that the museum. Uh, cannot stop you from subverting their story. Like they can lay out a narrative story in the museum, and they can they can tell you a story on the with the the artifacts by putting them in a certain order and mm-hmm. plaques and things like that. And there's absolutely nothing stopping you in a museum from just going skipping all the way to the end and then going backwards, or from walking into the museum and they set up a bunch of stuff that they think there's going to draw your eye first but you see something else and you run over there and suddenly you're sort of subverting that. With a video game, the player always, when you have a controller in your hand, nobody likes having control taken away, you know, for for long stretches of time. I think there's been, you know, there's been games that have like videos and there have been games that have, you know, photo galleries where things are sort of um, organized, not chronologically, but they're organized by... um, like kind of by by uh, by by category, um, and uh, and then there's there's things that I've tried I think to tell a more linear story, but that have sort of locked you into that linearity. Um, and so what we have here and is is something that's kind of built upon you know the foundational sort of belief that um, it has to be it has to be fast, it has to be zippy because the player should just be able to go wherever they want to. And we're going to tell you what the linear story is, but we also don't want to. You to feel like you're restricted and so with Karatika, we were looking at stuff like that um with atari 50 uh you know we we started doing that but it was really in you know within the development of atari 50 when we had to make that decision of kind of making that key you know flipping the switch essentially um and then additionally you know the other the other decision um was to have every game represented on those timelines so mm-hmm. that you know you so that again it, it sort of becomes the, the key user experience and um and again it, you know it was a risk and it was something where we didn't really know how it was would be responded to but you know it's it's very gratifying that people get it uh and so that allows us to continue on and and to do more of these and i was going to say we uh, we hinted that there's a, a story at play with the making of karateka and i think we yeah. should dive into that real quick so for those who don't know, um, for those who didn't grow up or weren't, uh, their formative years were not in arcades or home computers in the 80s. Uh, the story of Karateka, the making of Karateka follows, uh, let's just say it, a teenage um, boy by the name of Jordan Mechner, uh, pretty much a programming protege. 
uh, inspired by his love of video games, Bruce Lee and martial art movies, uh, would go off to innovate game design by introducing cinematic elements and I would say production values that were unseen at the time, specifically with the limited technology he was using. Uh, but I would say this though, that's fascinating. There's a lot to that story. But what I got out of it, Chris, I don't know if, um, if you feel similar, was the, the, the thing that kept emerging was the story of uh, Jordan's love for his father. And I think this, this kept going up. His father, Francis Mechner, who would go off not, not just to be the most supportive father you could ever hope for, but sort of a character in his own right. He would eventually become the model for some of the rotoscoped animation. He would create Karataka's soundtrack. And, um, and thank you very much. I don't know if this was intentional, but I didn't realize that Jordan had a graphic novel coming out next year about his father and about his life, uh, yeah. which there are snippets inside the game. So thank you for introducing me to that. So when we were going to tell the story of Karataka, what was, is it really the story of a game or is it a story of Jordan Mechner? So, I mean, it definitely started out as um, we knew that that story of Jordan was going to be really important. And it was because, you know, Jordan had already, he had published his journals, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, 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 the daily journal that he kept as a college student as he was making this game. Um, and the journal itself is just a fascinating read, especially when you kind of know where it's going. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's very raw. It's very personal. He was a great writer. You know, he really put the emotion onto the page. Um, and you could, and, and also it really set up the stakes because, um, you understood that, um, this, this game that he had made prior to Karataka, Death Bounce, which was a shooter game, you know, that the, that the having to deal with rejection and being very frustrated with like having that game be rejected by publishers, that was what led him to innovate with Karataka because he had to like take the right lesson away from that rejection. And the right lesson was that ultimately, you know, he was he was chasing what he thought would sell. He was chasing what he thought was was what, what really what he knew had already sold. He looked at what was on the shelves and said, well, I can do that. And he could. He absolutely could make something that was 100 percent up to the quality or exceeding the quality of um, video games that were on store shelves that were making a lot of money for people. Um, and so he realized that he could do this, but that ultimately he was kind of still chasing because what he, the feedback that he kept getting was, you know, hey, kid, this is what was popular six months ago. It's not what's going to be popular in a year. And so with, you know, after the sort of rejection with Death Bounce, he, he really he, he stopped looking at video games. I mean, certainly there was a little bit of inspiration from uh, the, um, the, the, the Broderbund game Choplifter by Dan Gorley, mm, yes. um, because he, that was what, that was, he has said, that's what kind of opened his eyes to the, the, the idea that a game could be, in fact, a storytelling uh, medium. And so uh, he, he starts looking at all these films that he's watching as a Yale student, as a member of the Yale Film Society, and he starts looking at the karate lessons that he's taking, and he, he takes inspiration from real life, and he takes inspiration from the stories around him. And, I mean, he had always wanted to be a screenwriter as well, but then he's like, oh, let's merge this, you know, let's, let's bring this together, and let's, rather than try to write a screenplay, let's, let's make this cinematic game that really tells a story that has a, a human interest in human-like characters. Um, and as you say, um, you know, the relationship, you know, so the, 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 the relationship between he and his father, Francis Mechner, um, really, you know, is a, is a huge part of the story. And it's something that you can sense. You can get a sense of it going through the, the journals as well. But what we're able to do, and this kind of comes back to the, um, the discussion with the museum, is that, um, you know, again, like 
I was in the Walt Disney Family Museum, you know, many years back, and I just remember this exhibit that they have there for the um, the Silly Symphonies musical cartoons, where it's like you put on a pair of headphones in the museum and you play music along to one of the cartoons. And um, that was really like, uh, it's really fun, but it's also like when we started, you know, thinking about this, it's like, you know, we had these concepts of interactive elements. And we had these concepts of like audio elements. There's a 15 minute audio podcast in there. And that was kind of directly inspired by that experience of like putting on headphones in a museum and shutting out everybody else and having my own little private kind of audio session. And just the idea that like, you can go into a museum and you can walk through it in 15 minutes if you want to, uh, or you can spend five hours or a whole day, you know, like looking at absolutely everything. And it's like, how deep do you want to go? How much information do you want to get? Can we make that available to you? Um, and so at all times, no matter where the player goes, we're trying to reinforce um, what we see are the the key parts of this of this story um and so that's why it's like we've got this director commentary from jordan and francis you know over the apple II version of the game we've got this audio podcast about francis's music we've got all the design documents the snippets from the journals the great video interviews with everybody you know it's like no matter what you what you gravitate towards hopefully you're getting something and it, and it intrigues you and it and it causes you to go back and maybe check out the things that you missed if you if you missed it which you will know you missed because the timeline will tell you there's a there's that one percent that you haven't you haven't I, viewed you know something i'm very lucky you know to be working with great like ui designers and people with a lot of you know more game design experience than than i have because by you know it's very natural for them to say let's gamify this let's put a counter let's you know let's let's have that little you know very subtle sound effect and visual effect to say that you did you did this and yeah i mean it's all very important i will say this though um it's it's interesting to learn that uh Kratika, the making of Kratika was you know um was a predecessor to atari uh, my question is you mentioned you had to put Kratika on the back burner to finish atari how many ideas uh how many like in regards to like the interactivity of the timeline, um, I will say this: there are fu- there are features and functions on the making of Karataka that are so interesting to me as a histo- as someone who loves seeing the history that is mind mind bending that we haven't seen them before. Um, for example, I talked about the production value of the game, where Jordan would, you know, he would do what we call rotoscoping. Which, by the way, uh, I mentioned Bruce Lee movies and martial arts. Rotoscoping was the hotness back in the 1980s too, <laughs> um, especially if you were watching any like non-Disney animated movies. Um, you know, they they he would he would film he would film the actions and use a uh, series of programs and artistic tricks to get them to turn into sprites. But Mike, there's a interaction. I think you call it rotoscope uh, theater, where you actually overlay the original sketches on top of the footage in an interactive way. And I've never quite seen something like this before it's it sort of uses the technology in new interesting innovative ways um what where did that come from besides the obvious uh, <laughs> i mean it, uh, it seems so obvious now it seems so obvious in hindsight but but going back so i mean uh, originally it's like we had the super eight video so again so karatika does uh the the making of karatika this product does predate my arrival at digital eclipse so like there was a version um, that was kind of in the works, uh, you know, but uh, like, and, uh, you know, Frank had worked some on it, but he was already gone and it was set down to like, you know, essentially one person, you know, and, and I was put on the, 
project and told that, you know, I kind of had carte blanche, you know, to, to change it around if I wanted to. And so we had the Super 8 video um, or the Super 8 film that had been digitized of Francis McNer wearing his wife's karate outfit, mm. running around in the, the backwoods of their house in Chappaqua, New York, with Jordan filming him on Super 8 so that, you know, he could try to capture the frames of, of Francis running. We had the tracing paper that had been used because, um, you know, we had that from the Strong Museum of Play because Jordan had donated all of his paper materials to the Strong. And of course, we had the we had the final sprites. Um, and then, of course, and then actually, you know, I, I ended up, you know, going back and, and doing more digging into Jordan's, uh, the contents of Jordan's floppy disks, which have been digitized and finding, um, you know, these early uh, sprites that came out of the Versa Writer, which was the, the hardware that Jordan essentially used to, quote unquote, digitize the, the, the tracing paper to do the rotoscoping. We really, he had to trace the tracing paper with a mechanical stylus arm that would then kind of redraw it in pixels. And it was very, it was very ugly on screen and he had to sort of redraw over it, but essentially it gave him the wireframes that he needed to be able to do lifelike animation. So we had those sprites and then I'm like, okay, well, I think what I have to do here is I've got to sit down with this Super 8 video and I got to figure out what frames, you know, are in the game. And that I and I messed it up the first time. I didn't I didn't do it right the first time because I was trying to kind of guess and then I noticed on um, the tracing paper that Jordan had not only drawn, you know, frames of Francis, not only traced Francis, but sometimes he would I don't know if it was as a reference or what he would trace the outline of a tree or a log or some other kind of background element. And that was like the Rosetta Stone of the whole thing because I was like, oh, I have to make sure that it matches up with the, you know, the tree or the log that's in the background as well. And once I started spitting out those frames, it was like, okay, great. Like we've got the actual frames that were used. And then it became okay you know i mean then it was really sort of the realization of all right this is a video game <laughs> um <laughs> you know i don't simply have to show the user a photo gallery you know we can let them play with these things and you know just you know it's, exactly. it's, it's it's photoshop it's just like photoshop layers right so it's like you know turn the layers on and off have it animate so i wrote out this whole like design document basically it was like you know this is how, because of course I'm not a programmer, I'm not a designer, but it's like I can put together something in Google Docs that it's like, this is what it should look like. Here's what the functionality should be. Here's how it should work. You know, just try to explain every little detail as best I can so that I could go to our designers and say, hey, like, this is, you know, what it would, I would like this to be. You know, does this make sense? It can't just be a, a loosey goosey kind of idea. It all has to be very planned out. But it was like, I, I feel like this is, this is this is exactly what a modern day museum would do. They'd yes. have it all on a big screen and you'd get to play with it. And the thing, it wouldn't be too involved because the idea would be you'd, you'd mess around with it for a little bit and then you you would be able to move on. You know, it would not supposed to be super involved, but it's like this is a video game. We have to let people play with this stuff. And so that's kind of where that came from. And, you know, we would love to you know keep if um, if we can keep coming up with ideas like that be able to show people that sort of thing i mean then we still we, we want to keep doing that for sure you mentioned uh, digital eclipse is known for their collections of doing remastered versions um there's yeah se several fantastic ones 
if anybody hasn't ever played them, I don't know if you've ever played like Pac-Man Champion Edition from Xbox years and years ago. Basically, what would happen if you were going on the, the wildest trip you've ever been on in your mind? And that's what it looks like. It's these were these were what the games looked like when you were a child, when you had nothing else better. They they're fantastic. And they've always been pretty good, Chris. But I think what you've done with Karataka Remastered is you've sort of integrated the interactive uh, interactive timelines within the game itself in a brand new way that, again, we've never seen before. And I think that's why it feels, even though you say the game predates Atari, it feels like an evolution of what Atari started. And it feels it feels exciting in a way that I don't think we've ever seen before in a collection like this. Or, I mean, it's 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 both because it yeah. really it. The, the early work that we were doing on that inspired Atari 50, and then mm -hmm. being able to take Atari 50 all the way to the finish line gave us, you know, a lot more learnings that we were then, you know, uh, you know, blessed to be able to uh, go back to Karataka and like apply mm -hmm. that stuff too. So it, it's like both of them really fed the other. Atari 50 would not have been as good as it was had we not already kind of like established what we were doing with the interactive documentary form with early work on Karataka. And then of course, the making of Karataka now is a much, it, it, you know, had we released that back in, you know, 2020 or something like that, it would have been totally different. Yes, and um, and I think what ins what inspired the sort of the sub the you know the subgenre of uh, gold master series because again Atari Atari doesn't have that label but Karataka does so what when was the decision to sort of imprint this as a new uh, thing that so that that idea of like this will be you know number one in the gold master series does actually predate me but there's just this uh, this this it's this concept of you know, if we're going to be doing this independently, if we we're 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 trying to sort of uh, change the way the um, the retro game business works, essentially, because mm -hmm. prior to this, uh, most of these products that you're seeing have been the publishers or the rights holders say we have this game, we want to bring it back. They come to a developer like an M2 or a Digital Eclipse, and they say, okay, Digital Eclipse. We want to bring this game back. How much is that going to cost? Okay, great. We'll pay you to do that for us. Then you do that for us. And then, you know, then we own it. And then we, you know, we get to sell it. And that's that, you know, for, for the, and the thing is though, then we can pitch to that publisher and say, Hey, like, wouldn't you like to see this? Wouldn't you like to see that? But ultimately it's their decision as to what the, the, the shape of that product is with the gold master series. We can, you know, we're, we're essentially saying it's a message to the consumers. Like, Hey, like, these are the games that Digital Eclipse believes are these impactful landmark games or these great stories of video game history that we want to tell. And the idea is, you know, maybe whatever your entry into the Gold Master series is, maybe you didn't buy Making of Karataka. Maybe you're going to buy, you know, the next one that comes out because, you know, you're going to hear about that one and it's going to be like, oh, like, that's more interesting to me. Or, or maybe you never even heard about Karataka, but the next one is going to, like, get onto your radar because it's different you know it's different games different people different stories different whatever it is somebody else writes a different story about it and so basically but then you see gold master series and you're like oh gold master series 002 what's 001 you know so it's it's like the idea is you know hopefully you know if we can you know build this up more and more with with, with future releases and really build out the gold master series and to do it in an independent way because we are going out i guess the end of that story that i was telling is that now with gold master series we're going out we are licensing the rights to the game and then we're doing it internally independently exactly how we want to do it um and that hopefully when you see gold master series on a product 
even if you've never heard of the game before, even if you have no idea what story it's telling, you're going to think to yourself, oh, a Gold Master Series by Digital Eclipse. I should buy that because, you know, I know that this is Digital Eclipse coming to me and saying, like, you need to see this. You need to you need to understand this story. You need to you need to experience this if you love gaming history. Two part question, though. Um, I, we, we talked about, you know, Atari being the genesis and then Karataka sort of being the first Gold Master Series official. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the likelihood that we're going to see other entries revolve around public or developers as opposed to just a single game? Do you think you might return to that? Um, like publishers are may, may even be defunct now, like U.S. like Virgin or, or, you know, or a developer like, you know, David Perry or something. Right. I mean, I think the story follows uh, based on... Um what is the content that we are able to license, you know, in the mm-hmm. sense of Karataka, it was because that was the game that we were able to, to to bring back. And so it was like, let's tell the best story about Karataka as we could. Now, let's say that Jordan owned every game he's ever done, which he doesn't, right? Mm-hmm. But let's say he owned absolutely everything, you know, maybe it would have been a different product if it was literally, you know, Karataka and the Prince of Persia and the Last Express, you know? So it, Totally, you know, in the future, you will see, I mean, we we want to, we want to, like, the story will follow from whatever we are able to do. So maybe it is the story of one publisher, like Atari 50 was, you know, mm-hmm. maybe it's the story of one, you know, one person, but they've released uh, more games. And then it's really an overarching story about, you know, looking at the, the career of one person through their entire gameography. Um, maybe it's not about a person. Maybe it's, yeah, maybe it's about a development studio or something like that. Or, you know, and this is not something that we're, we're working on right now, but like we've always talked about, wouldn't it be great if we could tell a broader story about gaming history by licensing multiple games from multiple developers or multiple publishers where the connection between them mm-hmm. is not that they were made by the same people or the same company, but that they're all elements in the evolution of, say, a genre, like, you know, the evolution of platforming games, you know, and showing like, various stops along the road where people may not have even been influenced by each other but it's more you know something like that so if it's a if it's a good story we want to try to figure out like how how can we tell that story sure and uh second second part of that question is for anybody who doesn't know and you know this more than most rights management when it comes to classic game is probably a nightmare it's probably like a quagmire built inside a pile of spaghetti built inside a you know a, a ton of bricks it's really difficult to sort of parse who owns what, who owns what version, whatever. Uh, we won't even get into it because it'll probably depress the audience. But that being said, I think, again, I go back to the Atari and I go back to this. I actually think it worked in the Digital Eclipse's favor that when you're talking about something like the Atari, the games themselves, let's let's be charitable here, probably don't have a lot of gameplay value to a modern modern gamers. But the story itself is so compelling that when you do get your chance to play the game itself, you're like it's not so much that you're playing it to enjoy it, but you're playing it to recognize what you've just watched. And it, it becomes tangible because it's very difficult to find a copy of Pong. It's very difficult to find a copy of Breakaway. Not only that, but when you do, they've usually been modernized because the rights management has made it so some other company has remade an inferior version. Like, don't get me started on Tetris. Like, there's billions of versions of Tetris and only three are very good. But another game that came out this year that that did something very, very similar to Digital Coast, but nowhere on the level, uh, came out very uh, last month. I don't know if have you, have you had a chance to look at um, It's or Bethesda's Quake 2 Remastered that was just released? I have not gotten a chance to look at that one yet. No. 
Um, I bring it up for two reasons. One, because very similar to what Digital Eclipse does, it, it sort of it retains the original stuff while while being uh, sort of being respectful to the original intent. But it also included a vault thing where, like Digital Eclipse, there was an inclusion of artifacts, of pictures, of documents. Again, nowhere nowhere on the level of Digital Eclipse. But there was also you could also play like the original demo from 1997. You could look mm -hmm. at our artifact videos, and I thought to myself, this is so interesting that there are so many companies now interested in the preservation of this in a way. Because you know, we every day there's a story about about a company shutting down a digital storefront. I think Nintendo is mm -hmm. supposed to shut down the 3DS store or something. And where what do you do? Where do you find these titles when you can't readily buy them? So you know, and and I do want to sort of segue into our final chapter real quick because. Uh, Chris, you are what Digital Eclipse does in reality is games preservation, whether it's for financial reasons or not there. This information is being saved. It's being digitized. It's being distributed. It's it's there. It's in the hands of people if they want to keep it. And I think that's fantastic. Somebody has to do it because, again, when you when you talk about a company like Atari or you you talk about a company like, um, oh, goodness, on television or whatever, you get all the you know, a company gets this data. And they go bankrupt and who owns the rights at that point you know the ip is sold into many hands and who owns what it, i imagine it becomes very you know difficult for someone like you to have to go and ask permission so uh i do want to get into one thing real quick because for those who don't know uh chris you have a lot of experience with this next company we, we talked about it prior uh nintendo uh this is 2023 this is the year that nintendo sort of came alive like never before um and you've written a book on japanese video games uh, you speak japanese correct Okay, and I don't speak Japanese, but like a lot of uh, like a lot of people who do enjoy Japanese video games, I speak accent. So if I mispronounce something, I, it's not intentional sure. at all. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, even on this podcast, we've actually uh, a couple of years back we had another another journalist who wrote about something similar, um, Jeff Ryan, who wrote basically two books. He wrote a book about Nintendo, about I think it was called Super Mario: How Nintendo Conquered America, and he wrote a book about Disney. And in 2023, it's so interesting because you have one company that seems to be on the ascent, Nintendo, and you have another company, a legacy company like Disney, that seems to be struggling. And specifically, it has to do with legacy. You know, you have the Super Mario Brothers movie breaking all box office records, becoming one of the biggest hits of all time. You have a theme park opening up. You know, you have um, you have the uh, Nintendo Museum being built in Kyoto, Japan, that was just announced. You've had so many things, but two things that. Uh, deal with games preservation i wanted your opinion on the super mario theme which is you know the ground theme for for fans uh was inducted into the u.s library of congress national recording registry it's the first video game track ever to do so and um again i mentioned the museum it seems to me that when something becomes mainstream it becomes uh it be people become interested in sort of protecting it and cataloging it and so my question to you is as someone who's talked about nintendo ad nauseum what do you think about Nintendo sort of being the once again being the sort of the precursor to get people interested in preserving video game history like this on a different level than like what Digital Eclipse was doing? Well, I mean, I think you know from from a um, I, I, you know the, the the issue right now is that the Video Game History Foundation, Frank Cifaldi, who you know now we mentioned uh, twice, mm -hmm. you know, he's, um, uh, the Video Game History Foundation, um, you know, has now highlighted uh, that um, eighty seven percent of games. Uh, released prior to 2010 are no longer commercially available. Um, and so this sort of flies in the face of um, a lot of some of the assertions of people in the game industry. It's because essentially the, the, the reason that they're making this point is because 
libraries and institutions would love to be able to offer remote access uh, or really just offer more access, um, you know, to, to people, um, you know, to, so that they can play uh, classic games. And, you know, they're sort of making the point that, like, most video games are, you cannot essentially legally play them mm -hmm. uh, unless you were to fly to an institution or go to an institution that has a physical or hard copy of that game and sit down in their institution and sit there and oh. play it. And that's essentially, it's it's like, it, it means that you can't legally access it because it's, it's such a difficult thing to do. And so we just need in general um, to wake people up to the, the idea that like there really is a games preservation problem right now. Um, and that's something we would really like to see happen is you know, for, say, the U.S. government, you know, to carve out more exceptions in uh, copyright law um, to allow institutions to provide remote access uh, to games to everybody so that the 87% of games that are inaccessible through legal means at this point um, can become accessible through um, through legal means and to do it, you know, in a way that is respectful of copyrights, is respectful of people's rights, but also um, is, uh, you know, kind of understands the kind of a dire situation that we find ourselves in right now. Um, and, you know, there, but that, you know, additionally, you essentially have all of this sort of like underground preservation going on because because of these issues with, you know, with copyright law, because things are, can be in copyright limbo, you know, because things can just be in a situation where the rights are never going to get worked out again. I mean, kind of as you, you know, as you kind of mentioned earlier, um, you know, you have things where it's like you, the, the rights are never going to get untangled. They're never going to be released legally again, um, especially in this sort of situation of perpetual copyright that we have right now, which is in and of itself kind of a mess. You know, I mean, I would be I would love it if we could revert back to, you know, what we had you know, hundreds of years ago and where, you know, copyright was something that you had for like a certain period of time and then everything went public domain after that um and it's unlikely that we're going to get back to that in any sort of a situation you know in our lifetimes either so everything's kind of a mess but i really applaud the work of um you know preservationists essentially amateur preservationists who um are working to make sure um that you know these things do not actually disappear and that they do get so it's it's one of those things where it's just we have to raise awareness of it uh, well, so that everybody understands that it's a, it's a problem. You know, two things. Like, uh, I remember the first time I went to the Smithsonian, I saw a Game Boy behind glass. I was very depressed. I thought I'm not that old. But also, I'm, um, I was uh, I was back east uh, a year ago, and I was in a city called Laconia, New Hampshire. And they, there's an arcade there called Fun Spot. I don't know if you heard of it. They, they call themselves the yep. world's largest arcade. Yep. I think people confuse it with Twin Galaxies. But if you have you ever been inside there? Um, I have not, no. no it's... It's it's a, it's got an impressive selection of old arcade games from the 80s, and I emphasize yeah. 80s. But what you just talked about is exacerbated when you see that this collection, in many cases, these might be some of the only versions of these games in existence, and they're still playable by the public. That means, and you go downstairs, and there's bumper cars, and there's you know foosball and all that stuff, and those same kids right. are coming up with sticky hands and putting their hands on like a very rare Popeye Nintendo arcade game from yeah. 1982. And on one hand, you're like, okay, you want the kid to experience it, but if that kid breaks it, then it's done. Then 
you know, how do you, you know, how do you reconcile it? You know, how do you square the circle? And I don't, I don't know the answer to that. But if there was a, you know, I've always felt if there was a bigger concerted effort, then we can, we can sort of try to digitize and solve these issues and at least retain them because once they're gone, they're gone. I know. And it's very, you know, it really, um, you know, I think people um, tend to immediately think they put their priorities in the wrong place sometimes because I think there's people are like, oh, we have to make sure that we, um, you know, save all of these individual video games. But in reality, a lot of that stuff has kind of been saved. And I think museums sometimes start to think, oh, we have to collect all these video games. And then they realize Mm -hmm. that, you know, researchers who want to play those games could just you know, go online and find the ROM of the game and find an emulator and play it. And a lot of games are, you know, they're not they're not legally preserved, which is unfortunate and which is wrong. But, you know, they need to be. Um, but they're they're sort of like they're they're already sort of underground preserved. Um, and really, you know, and people look at uh, game cartridges and they look at CD-ROMs and stuff like that. And they're like, oh, you know, those are going to get bit rot and, you know, they're not going to be playable. And we have to make sure we dump everything. And it's like, it's true. But really what's disappearing is the hardware. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, whether it's arcade games, I mean, they're not making more arcade games. uh, And so now it's like, I go to the show every year called California Extreme that's held here in the Bay Area. And I feel like California Extreme had its peak like 10 years ago, as far as like the the number uh, and the breadth and variety and the exhaustiveness of the classic arcade games that they would have. And now you go and there's still a lot of games, but it's like you, you, there's some you can't find anymore. And that's probably because either the machines are breaking down or they're becoming so much more rare that the owners don't want to put them on display anymore for, as you say, kids with sticky fingers to come up and grab because they're so precious that it's tough to make them available. And so the thing is, it's like, again, that it's like, if you're a researcher and you want to know what it was like to play an arcade game from the 1970s, as the years go on, your opportunities to be able to get hands-on and interact with the real thing are going to go down. Um, and we, you can lose a lot of information that way. So something that we tried to do, and again, this is no substitute for the real thing, but it's like when you see the arcade games in Atari 50, the anniversary celebration, if you just take the ROMs of those arcade games and you just run them in an emulator, you are not actually getting the experience of what it was like to play it in the arcade for some of these games, because sometimes the ROM of the game that you see on the monitor was accentuated by uh, acetate overlays um, by, mm-hmm. uh, yes. you know, that, that would add color to black and white or uh, flashing lights on the control panel, stuff like that. So, you know, we went back and looked at the original arcade machines and, you know, for all of the, for the bezels essentially that are around those games, you know, our designers and our engineers asked the question of like, how do we create something that is more akin to the original experience? Um, Because you have to document that as well. Because if all you have is a ROM file, and so again, some of these games were even ROM, they were, you know, they were solid state. So it's like you you have to document the experience of, of what it looked like to play those games because otherwise you are not having the same experience anymore that somebody back in the day would have had when they when they played the original thing. And console hardware is the same way. I mean, it's not the it's not the CD ROMs that are we're losing to bit rot, but it's the it's the Sega Saturn that you play it on is, you know, a ticking time bomb, you know, for some of these systems, if you don't replace the capacitors inside. And even if you do try to maintain them, you know, it's the hardware that breaks. It's the hardware that that kind of gets thrown away. So it's like, that's, you know, or, or original controllers, you know, like how, 
how how long until you know something like an original Super Nintendo controller is too expensive to use? You know, like what well, what happens there? Like it's 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 those things that like people don't necessarily think about, and that you, we now have a lot of historians that are looking to try to capture the full experience of of these things. You know, there's a, a story that was floating around. I don't, I don't know who this guy's PR was, but it's excellent. I don't know if you've ever caught it, but um, there's been a lot of stories about this man recently who was put into an iron lung when he was a t- when he was very young, and he's still he's in his 70s and he's still uh-huh. using the exact iron lung he was using. And I, it was and the bit that's interesting is they don't they haven't made this iron lung in 50 years. He's been using the same one. Oh and right, yeah. It, yeah, you probably saw this and. And his yeah. iron lung started breaking down and they didn't, right. the company didn't make it anymore. And they, they had to source from fans online to help keep this man alive with his iron lung. Right. And that, yeah. That, and that's kind of how I feel about some of this old arcade stuff is that, you know, they, they're the collectors out there, are the ones who are really dedicated in a way that the companies themselves, because they have no personal interest in it, they acquire the IP, you know, they acquire the titles. And I, and I, I don't want to be disparaging towards them, but you know, like you said, a lot. I think a lot of these companies they look at games as, like you said, digital bits. They don't look at them as the the total package of what they were or the experience as it was. You know, I I remember the first time I think I saw a, I think it was Asteroids 2, and like you said, uh, you know, back when graphics were primitive, they would have overlays to to compensate for backgrounds. You know, there would be there would be things that would in, increase it. You don't see that if you're just playing the digital ROM. Uh, but I do. But b- before we get going, though, I do think there's one more thing I want to touch on briefly, um, only because I have you here and you're mm-hmm. sort of an expert on this. And I'm, I'm trying to find a way to make it fit. But, mm-hmm. you know, as we talk about old games, we're, you know, we've talked about one style of game. We've talked about Western games, if we can just be honest. Karataka, believe it or yeah. not, believe it or not, um, the game with a, a made up Japanese name with a blonde haired hero was not Japanese. It's it's it was made in America. But, you know, you're. Your expertise is is primarily, if I'm wrong, primarily in Japanese titles. Um, you, you, yeah. you know, you, you're you're kind of known for this. So I just want to I want to do a corrective thing because I, I thought about this. I was at the I was at the grocery store the other day before when I was thinking of questions to ask you, and I couldn't help but notice that they they sell sushi with cream cheese. Every they, you could buy gas station sushi now at any gas station, sure. and it's it's got cream. It's it's something else. It's I don't know if it's sushi, but it's something else. But you go back to the 80s and eating raw fish was considered strange. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for anybody who's ever played video games from like 1985 to like 2000, there were, you know, Japan was considered the wonderland. There'd be so many titles that would never make it out here. Or if they did, they'd be transformed. You know, and you probably know what some of the games I'm talking about. Um, you know, like for example, like Ranma One Half would become like street combat or magical hat like no buto by turbo die bukans if i didn't pronounce that right it's my accent uh became like decapitat starring chuck d head you know or mm-hmm. my favorite one of all was a game called yokai buster you know ruka no dai koban became the jetsons <laughs> these were changed because they, they thought the games were too japanese so when we talk about bringing back classic games chris um one thing that we never really talk about is that there are so many games that were Japanese that when they became westernized, they ch- the, the characters were changed, the graphics were changed, the stories were changed. Sometimes everything was changed. They, they resemb- didn't resemble at all. Do you ever think um, we're ever going to see a time when we will, when some of these games will be released like this and sort of have their original content respected? You mean like uh, when a game that was Americanized comes back in its original form? 
Yeah, and, and I don't mean uh, not like a working designs game where, you know, dialogue was changed or like a Street Fighter game where they changed the name of a character for, you know, copyright reasons. But yeah. a game a game when like a an anthropomorphic panda became like a metal robot, you know, because right, metal sure. robots were more marketable. Well, I mean, you know, the, the, the thing is, yeah, I mean, if if, uh, if if there was ever to be like a Ranma one half, you know, compilation, then, of course, they'd bring back the they'd bring over the original. Right. They wouldn't want mm-hmm. to bring over Street Combat. And actually that I mean, that kind of changed very quickly because, you know, the, the, yeah. the Street Combat came out. And then very shortly after that, you know, the actual Ranma one half came out as a Ranma one half game. Because by that point, the comic and the anime were actually available in the U.S. And so that was more of a known quantity. It was very quick that that happened. And so that was sort of like, that was like right on the line. Um, But, you know, the thing is, I would push if, you know, if I was in charge of that, I would say, okay, well, we got to get Street Combat in there too. Because (laughs) that's a very interesting story. And it's part of the, it's part of the story. Um, So I would, it would be like, it would really, it would not even be like having to push to get the original in there. It would be having to push to get the weird Americanized version in there also, you know, even though it was, you know, not highly rated essentially, you know, it was, but, but to be able to tell that story. And so, you know, I've, I've been very lucky, um, you know, we got to work with Konami on the Ninja Turtles Kalbunga collection. I mean, those were all, those were all games that were made in Japan. Um, we were able to have Konami go into its vaults uh, in a secret location in Japan and uh, see what they had. And they had tons and tons of materials of design documents and stuff like that. And we went ahead and, um, you know, translated all of it and built out a uh, system by which we could have like floating translation overlays and all of these documents oh, nice. and read them. Yeah. And so that was a, that was a big, big task. That was like two months of my life. Um, you know, doing that, but it was like the the results. I mean, you, you can't argue with it, to be able to sit there and read um, all of these notes um, that, uh, that, that that the designers had put together. Um, and that was that really came. You know, a lot of my desire to really want to do that came from you know being able to see the design documents, being able to read them, saying, "Oh, these are really fascinating. Like, you've got to get this out to you know to everybody." Um, and so, you know. I would it would be it would be great to get to work on you know more games that originated in Japan, um, just because I I know that there's some amazing stories out there and you know to work with some of those designers would be great. So you know I mean we'll see we'll see what the future holds basically. I was gonna say I don't think I don't know if we're ever gonna be fully ready for like a Cho and Niki Renaissance in America, but that would be fantastic, especially during an election year. I would love to see heads explode. Um, but no, it's, it's just so interesting as someone who grew up in that time, you know, you look at magazines and you see screenshots of games that you would never, ever play because they were deemed too, too strange and too different. And it's, you know, you watch Japan get all this crazy stuff and you watch Western versions get their own things. And that doesn't happen anymore. Really. Yep. We have pairing yeah, par- now. Right. And again, you know, like, you know, Cho Aniki, as you mentioned, I mean, that'd be an yeah. amazing one to do an interactive documentary about because oh, yes. like, you know, Everybody knows what these games are, but they're more like the punchline to a joke. But it's like, the question is like, like, you know, who made them? Why did they make them? How did they make them? Where did it come from? You know, what inspired them? How do we take this thing that seems so outre and bizarre and put it in its proper cultural place so that when you are done, it's no longer just like this punchline to a joke, but you have respect for what it was and you understand where it came from you know i mean there's just there's so mm-hmm. much i think to be done uh with something like that where it's, you look at a game and it's like all right well 
this there's a story here. <laughs> like this, somebody somebody has a really interesting story, and it, it, it you it's it's it, and and really, I mean, it kind of just all comes back to we believe that the best way of telling the stories of video game history is through the interactive medium of the video game itself. Yes. Because I've read a lot of books on video game history and there's some fascinating ones. I've watched documentaries about video game history and there's some wonderful ones out there, but that fundamentally, you know, this is an interactive medium and to be able to allow people to get hands on with the games or certain parts of those games that is the best way of being able to really communicate to people why this story, like, why are we telling you this story? Why was this game so important? Why is this a historical tale that we need to tell? It's like, this is the this is the medium in which to do it, bar none. And I think, you know, those of us who've grown up in a world, you know, with, with high-class documentaries on PBS and, and, and theaters and whatnot, I think, you know, we've come to expect documentaries to sort of look a certain way. You know that that familiar like talking heads but i think uh with atari 50 anniversary i think especially with uh, the making of karataka i think what digital eclipse has done they've sort of rewritten the rules a little bit and I, I do mean that that's not hyperbole i think we're not going to go back now i hope we don't go back to just sort of the static like look at photo of this and that i think there is a there is something different something unique and something very interesting and magical about the the way you guys have done this and i Look forward to not only the next couple uh, iterations of the Game Master series, but sort of how other people take the, you know, take the take the ball from here and go with this because now they see what happened. There's so much content out there, and I and I hate to say it, Chris, but it's, you know, it's it's probably cheaper to make a game documentary than it is to make a $400 blockbuster game, and I would I think we can I think we can have both. Yeah, and it, well, I mean, it, you know, it's it's uh, it's not as, it's not as cheap as you think it is. Um, well, I hope it's uh, not four hundred million though. I hope it's uh, not no, that much. No, no, it's not four hundred million dollars. Um, so yeah, I mean, but again, we at Digital Eclipse, we can't do everything, right? Yeah. There's only so many we could potentially make. So it we we do need to convince everybody else to to do it this way too. Yes. You know, so yeah. And I will say this uh, before the show, I asked you if we were allowed to talk about future titles and I will res- I will respect your, your answer. But I will say this, if we're making up a dream list, was there was there besides Cho and Iki, was there any other just left field, you know, dream game on your thing that if you ever could in a perfect world, like in, never in a million years. But if you got it, if you won the lottery, is there is there one series or one game in particular or one person that you'd like to sort of spotlight? Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, I, it's just I, I'm sure that at, at some point I'll get this phone call, you know, from, mm. you know, Miyamoto-san at Nintendo, who will have seen Making of Karateka and be like, oh, you've, you've got to do this with, uh, you know, Super Mario Brothers here. I I've already started scanning all my old design documents. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's uh, <laughs> extremely unlikely. But, uh, you know, if you were to ask me, like, yeah, what's the dream? It's like, yeah, of course, doing it for Nintendo, you know, doing the history of, of Final Fantasy, you know, stuff like that. I mean, those are incredible stories. And, you know, you, you have to figure that the um, the extent of the documentation that they have, that would be documentation that people would just, you know, would make you weep to look at it, you know? So mm. it would be wonderful uh, to, to be able to do something, you know, with that level of, um, uh, you know, essentially that, that has that level of fandom even now. Um, you know, Karataka at the time was extremely huge, but, you know, and a lot of it is us going back and having to remind people and tell people like, hey, yeah. like, you've never heard of this game, but actually it's really important for you to look at. Um, it would be very interesting to, to get hands on with something where 
um, it's it's uh, we don't even have to tell you what its legacy is because its legacy is so taken for granted because it's it's uh, it's such a major release. Um, but really, even just as a player, I mean, look, you know, if Nintendo <laughs> wants to do it and not involve me, you know, if they, you know, I'll I will be thrilled to go through all of that as as a as a player as well. It is interesting. I mean, I, I we keep bringing up Nintendo, but it is, mm-hmm. but it does. I think it. I think it. Uh, I think it is appropriate to say that out of all the video game companies that we can mention, publishers, design, developers, whatever, Nintendo has always seemed to be good at protecting their their legacy as well. So I think that's it's probably built into their DNA. Like they they they're very. I don't just think they're ruthlessly protective, but it does seem like they they know a thing or two about uh, managing that legacy and sort of res- like keeping hold of it. But no, I think uh, I, I agree with you. If, if Miyamoto calls, let me know. I'd like to talk to him too. It's been a oh, while. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's been a while. You know, tell him how, how's the how's the wife. Yeah. But uh, I want to say I think that's a good place to start. I I don't want to do any spoilers, but just want to thank our special guest again, um, Digital Eclipse's editorial director Chris Kohler, back on the Popstar podcast to talk about the making of Karataka. Available now on pretty much any platform you can think of. It's there. Chris, thank you very much for showing up. Yeah, thank you. No, thank you again for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Pop Zara podcast. Remember to like, follow, share, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app or service.